Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sent nationwide. But right now, it's time for On Balance. We will hear from that high school football coach who took his fight to pray at the 50-yard line all the way to the Supreme Court. And then he won. In the meantime, I'm Elizabeth Vargas. We hope to see you again right back here again next week at 6 o'clock. Have a great and safe Labor Day weekend. the program tonight, Breaking Bad. On planes, trains, and old-fashioned road rage, why are we all so angry? Is this the new normal in America? And need a nap? The explosive new book that has the White House scrambling, saying the president is, quote, tired. I mean, that's a ridiculous assumption to make. Is the commander-in-chief still up to the job as we head into election season? And called back to coaching, the coach at the center of a major Supreme Court decision back on the sidelines tonight. Just showed the power that uh, prayer and God has in America. What he wants people to take away from his very public fight. And back to school, the gold star wife delivering on a last promise. It's the only one I thought I wasn't going to fulfill, but here we are. She's now on campus alongside her two kids. And cheers, more college campuses tap the kegs and allow beer sales at games. What could possibly go wrong? And good Friday evening to you. I'm Elizabeth Pran in for Leland. First tonight, it is Friday. And we're already in the thick of it. Travel is breaking records, and the weekend is just getting underway. But aside from travel delays or congestion, are we being kind to each other? Videos circulating all summer showing folks throwing things at performers during concerts. And all too often, crazy videos of plane passengers shouting, kicking, fighting. In fact, it's such a big issue that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg brought it up today. One big concern that we have had in the air has to do with unruly passengers. And here again, I want to share some of the numbers. There was a massive spike in unruly passenger incidents during the pandemic. We have seen numbers get back down much closer to pre-pandemic levels. But in recent months, as you can see, we've seen another uptick that is an area of concern. That is one reason why we are continuing the zero-tolerance policy. So you heard him there. As he mentioned, while the numbers are coming down post-pandemic, they've actually been ticking back up, doubling from February to August, August with the most reports we've seen all year. And it's not just on planes. The L.A. Times writes Americans have forgotten how to behave. It's time to stop blaming the pandemic. Just look at the rude behavior in restaurants towards wait staff. Harvard Business Review did a study and found 73% of staff say customers routinely behave poorly. That's up from 61% in 2012, and another 66% say bad customer behavior towards other customers is also commonplace. So that's up 50% 
since 2012. So what could be causing all of this? And we did a little bit of digging. Nearly half of Americans are still socializing less than before the pandemic, according to Newsweek. A think tank called KFF writes 90% of adults agree that there is a mental health crisis. Meanwhile, Future Forum reports that worker burnout has reached a new high. 46% of women and 37% of men say they're just burnt out. Workforce shortages and a shift toward remote work also means people are just clocking longer. Carol Lieberman is a forensic psychiatrist and a trial expert witness. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, Carol, how did we get here? Is it really the pandemic or are we just disintegrating as a society? Well, it's a little bit of both. Certainly the pandemic did cause us to be isolated and to lose our social graces and and really with masks and um and being told to stay six feet apart from each other, all of these things, they made us feel like other people are dangerous. You know, we're supposed to stay away from them. They might have some deadly bug. Um, I think also uh, the political you know, divisions that have gotten worse right. uh, are also egging people on. And so I many think, people are leading by example, you're thinking? Well, I, I'm just that... Um, just that people are so dissatisfied. And, you know, part of it is when we, we we were told during the pandemic that there's going to be a new normal, you know, just hold on. At the end of the tunnel, there's going to be a light and it's going to be a new normal. And we all were hoping for something really good at the end of the tunnel. Right. And we're very um, discouraged and um, angry that, uh, that in fact, there are all these problems. We've come out of the COVID tunnel, well, <laughs> for the first COVID tunnel, and, and we have, um, you know, survived and so on, and we've held on, and we're, and, and now things really aren't, uh, the, aren't as good as they were before we went into them. Right. And if you if you look at our screen right now, I mean, when you think about a concert, you're going there to be entertained. You're physically paying to be at a concert. And you talked about the why, you know, maybe it was the mass. Maybe it's social media where we can hide behind not only the mass, but also, you know, some type of persona that we have online. But if the pandemic taught us that maybe it's every man for himself, how do we unlearn that? Because we are looking at three and a half years out of the pandemic, and we're already starting to talk about masks again. I mean, is that just going to enable the behavior that we've seen? Oh, yes. You know, it's that's a very, very unfortunate situation that is being proposed. Um, you know, we, we really need to be able to be to learn to be kinder to each other, uh, learn to be kinder to ourselves and and satisfy ourselves, you know, find things that we can uh, find a purpose in life, find something that we can feel happy about, um, do something enjoyable, go out into the uh, into nature and so on. You know, um, during the um, right before you, when they were talking about air rage and and um, call a pilot, you know, um, in addition to that, there is uh, you can bring on with you um video, audio and video things that calm you down, which for, and and that doesn't have to just be on the airplane. Of course, you can be doing that in your regular life, um, to, to calm yourself, calm your anxiety and so on. You know, one of the things that's a, a new problem is that, um, 
people have been hearing in the news about the uh, lowering the standards, air, airlines lowering the standards for pilots because they now need so more pilots than they did during the pandemic. And so they, for example, they lowered the EKG requirement, the heart health requirement. And there was just something but, in the news. You know, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but but I, I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, I'm almost focused on looking forward. I'm raising three children. I think at least four times a day I say, remember, use kind words, use kind choices. You know, why do I have to do that? Why is that not inherent in human nature? Well, because they're not all parents are doing that. You know, that's why. Um, and, and oh, and, and of course, a big problem is uh, the mental health issue. During the pandemic, people really weren't getting mental health treatment. They weren't going out or even, of course, there's teletherapy, but um, they weren't getting as much therapy as, as intensive therapy. And so there are a lot of people who are sort of left over, you know, um, with problems that are not being helped. And, of course, it's important if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling depressed. I mean, depression um, is anger directed inward. So either right. people are depressed. Or they're expressing it outward in things like this air rage and car road rage and all of that. And so people really need to seek help um, if they are feeling uncomfortable in, in the airplane or on the ground, anywhere. Yes, and we need um, parents need to be much more involved with school these days and have those talks at the end of the day, you know, at dinner time uh, that we used to have. And yeah. We need to. How was your day? You know, what can. Carol, so often when we have these conversations, we always talk about how um, it always comes down to conversations inside the household. But, you know, I see some of the children in some of those videos, and that's actually the most disheartening. And, and your, your advice was productive. We're grateful that you joined us tonight. Certainly, we hope that some of these images disappear. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. All right, so you're looking at live pictures of the White House, where staffers are bracing for the release of a brand new book about President Biden detailing his first two years in office. The book is called The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. It's written by Franklin Foer, and it promises unprecedented access inside the Biden White House, featuring hundreds of interviews. Kelly Meyer got her hands on a copy, and she joins us now. Hi, Kelly. Hi there. Yeah, our team has been, you know, going through these pages all day, more than 400 pages in this book, and it really details and goes into a deep dive on these the chaotic uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. It goes into, as well, um, you know, uh, talking about how tired he is uh, occasionally, admitting that to some of his team, uh, basically as the criticism around his age as he runs again for the White House for another term. So it goes into detail on this. In terms of what they go into on the Afghanistan withdrawal, they say that he is uh, standing by his decision to do this, um, basically saying that there is also another moment in there that he also talks about um, the Warsaw speech where he ad-libs and talks about uh, President Vladimir Putin basically saying that he cannot remain in power. Uh, it details moments after that where he uh, is focusing instead of on the speech, the moment where he ad-libs that and basically saying that his press is coddling him like a toddler and that John Kennedy didn't get treated like a baby like that. So uh, it goes off the cuff a little bit in that. Um, another excerpt that was obtained by News Nation basically saying that he um, 
the press was uh, marveling at his rhetoric or weren't marveling at his rhetoric or his triumphs here. Uh, it was back to describing him as blowhard, lacking in self-control. That is the portion what they were talking about for the moment in Warsaw. So a lot of different moments in this book um, really going into some more access that this uh, staff writer at The Atlantic had, had received. Okay. Um, I, there was one section, because we're just getting, so for our, our viewers at home, we're getting excerpts of it because it's not coming out until next week. And he, he made a part about Afghanistan, which was, which was fairly controversial. I mean, we, we're still talking about it and deciding if it was the right move or not, right? And he said, quote, I want to read this to our viewers. Biden didn't have time to vicariously consume the news, but he was well aware of the coverage and it infuriated him. It did little to change his mind, though. So was he set on that? Did it give you really an inside look of where his mind was at, despite the criticism? Because there were there were critics. Well, it says that he was in the Situation Room watching this all on television as it played out. The coverage that everybody was saying that this was chaotic, everything was falling apart. And he was saying that, you know, he was infuriated by it, as it says, but he stood by his decision as this was the best way to exit. He also, we learned, uh, had a really personal role in getting some people out, that he was really um, paying a lot of attention to that, uh, getting messages from friends or members of Congress, and was really in tune with making sure that people got out, got to the airport, and it was something that he was really uh, paying attention to and that he apparently cared about a lot as he was following this withdrawal two years ago in late August. Um, Elephant in the room, no pun intended, does the book touch on former President Donald Trump, uh, you know, what he thinks about him. I mean, obviously, that was a man who who has lots of books written about him. There was a moment uh, there that they talk about, and something we have heard him say is that he didn't want to say the name Donald Trump really at all in his presidency. We heard that, or we didn't hear it really, through with some of his speeches, that he didn't say the name President Trump, Donald Trump at all. Um, and then he'd only speak to him and call him the former guy. Uh, but obviously there were moments where he'd have to come out and say it. But that was a moment where he talked a little bit about Donald Trump, but not too much. And I, and I want to share with our viewers because we, we looked at some statistics here. And it says um, there were more than 1,200 books written about then-President Trump during his time in office, 500 during President Obama's first term, and just over 150 about President Biden. So before I let you go, you know, what is your take on that? Is that is that a transparency? Transparency is that an access issue? Do you have any take on that? There's twofold. I mean, I was here during the Trump administration, and obviously now during the Biden administration. The Trump administration was uh, did give us a lot of access. Um, as well, the Biden administration does give us some talking heads as we go over to the White House lawn and talk with them as well. Um, but Trump also had a ton of news. I mean, I was here. I had the Twitter alert set up on my phone on weekends all of the time. On Fridays, there was someone new getting fired. There was a lot to write about with uh, former President Trump. So there, there could be a lot of answers to that question. You're so right. Whether or not it's partisan, um, and I agree with you, it, it, there was always headlines. There was always tweets. There was always something going on. It just seemed like a very active presidency, which, of course, they all are. So Kelly Meyer, great reporting. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us on Friday. So that book's release, of course, is just the latest illustration of President Biden's physical and mental capacity as a concern, you know, of his overall age. And it's really consuming both parties. In fact, new polling shows that seven in 10 Democrats say he is too old for a second term. So it brings us back to the question of experience over youth. Of course, after all, Vivek Ramaswamy, to his critics, seemed way too young to be president. So the president's career in Washington, as you know, has spanned well over five decades. But at this moment, just yesterday, is a stark reminder that voters have very short memories. I'm going to Florida uh, Saturday morning. 
You heard him there. He said, where am I going now? So it may not be too notable, but it's really low-hanging fruit for people who don't like the president. Biden's growing reputation is that he's feeble and he's bumbling. Presidents and candidates throughout the years have faced similar imaging issues. Biden's tumble over a sandbag earlier this summer at the Air Force Academy's graduation ceremony recalled a similar moment Bob Dole had on the campaign trail back in 1996. Kent Gray joins me now. He's a former advanced man in the Bush and Trump White Houses. And Kent, obviously you have um, some experience during really that very time back in the 90s. Your take, sir, on drawing any analogy between those two men. Well, it always hurts me to see Bob Dole come off that stage because I was the guy who introduced him onto that stage uh, in Chico, California, 20-some years ago. Uh, You know, everything that we do from at the White House has a optics component to it. All messaging that comes out of political uh, Washington has, if it can, has an optics part of it. And so you see presidents and candidates do events all around the world, all around the country, school events, rallies, trips abroad. And you want those to go smoothly, look good, and and reinforce the message the White House is trying to send. Okay, but they don't always go well, right? So if we're equating or measuring a president's ability, you know, when is it when is it fair, right? I guess life's not fair. But I mean, I I can't go a day without falling. I'm not almost 80. It's life. Yeah, I mean, and and there's a lot of concerns to go into that, and I've been involved in that. I did a trip with President Trump to England uh, that, that involved a ramp, interestingly, on kind of a, a, a foggy day, and so we were dealing with like grit paint and stuff to make sure that he was uh, on leather shoes, was was sturdy and and able to get down that ramp. Those are things that we look at uh, from an optic standpoint. Of course, the Secret Service looks at it from a safety standpoint. They check everything that we do and make sure that it's safe. So you've got multiple uh, eyes looking at everything. But from the optics standpoint, we want nothing to impinge on the story that's trying to be told. So if he falls down the stairs, all the money spent on the event in whatever state it might be was a waste because the whole media world just watches the fumble. Okay, so from an optics standpoint, when we see... President Donald Trump taking shorter stairs because, you know, he doesn't want his hair to get messed up or George W. Bush taking shorter stairs because of security. So it is that calculated for us at home. We're thinking to ourselves, oh, it can't be that big of a deal. But behind the scenes, there is that much effort put into the length of a stairwell. Everything is important when it's on 40 uh, TV cameras worldwide broadcast. And so we look at every deal that we every detail that we possibly can. And, you know, at this point, the Biden White House is looking at this situation. The, the big Air Force One, which is a 747, has three floors on it. It has a lower belly that normally is luggage in a commercial airliner than the main floor and then the, the cockpit and communications up top. Unlike most airplanes, it has a couple different stairs that actually uh, fold down from the inside. That's it there. Right. That fold down from the inside of the plane. Those are not on any normal commercial airliner. The president, when you often see him get onto the airplane or come off the airplane, is on a taller set of air stairs that rolls up on a truck. And it goes all the way to the second floor of the Air Force One. That's the 747. And that's about 19 feet in the air whereas the smaller one that drops down is only eight or nine feet in the air. And when you so look at difference. the, 
Yeah, it makes a huge and, difference. And and the and other Ken, thing, and I, I don't want to, I don't yes. want to interrupt you. I mean, and I don't want to be rude. We don't, we don't have a ton of time. But sure. I think my biggest question is, can he recover? My point is, is when we make these fumbles, can he recover? And again, and we're a little bit tight on time. Well, they're just trying to avoid any future video of something bad happening, and that's that's this is part of it. And and his safety from a Secret Service standpoint sure. of not getting hurt. Sure. Oh, of course. Of course. Well, Kent Gray, um, I wish we had more time. Um, you have such experience and expertise, and we're grateful that you joined us tonight. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend. Coming up, a praying football coach sideline. That is until the Supreme Court got involved. We'll have all the details coming up. And we play good summer, bad summer with politicians soaking up the sun this summer. But which ones are in hot water? Welcome back. You may remember the story. The Seattle football coach fired in 2015 for praying on the field during games will return to the sidelines this week. He took his fight to the U.S. Supreme Court in a battle that pitted his First Amendment right to practice religion against prohibition of establishing a religion. It's been a long haul. It's been a marathon. And something I thought we could work out in you know, a week turned into a seven-year battle. He got his job back as football coach and received almost $2 million from a settlement from the Bremerton School Board. Leland spoke with Coach Joe Kennedy ahead of his team's big game tonight. Explain to us what it's going to be like now going back to the same field that, what has it been, eight years, seven years? Yeah, since you were able, years. Since you were able, yeah, since you were able to be there. It was kind of weird at first, uh, but it, everything comes back to you. The coaches have been outstanding. The players, boy, these kids are, I swear, they're getting younger every single year. But, yeah, it's great to be back on the field after this long wait and this long fight. And I'm just looking forward to being able to be out there with my guys and being able to thank God afterwards. All right. I know you're planning on praying after the, the game as you as you did in the past. Tell me, how, how has this fight changed you? How has it changed your view uh, about religion? How has it changed your view about the school that you work at who, who fought you for so long? Well, first off, it, it's changed me and my relationship with my wife. We got into some pretty intense fellowship over this over the past eight years. She was an employee at the school district, so you can imagine what that was like for her. We had two kids at, in the high school at the time, so they had to go through it. So this was a big strain on my family, but it really showed me exactly where our roots are, and it just grounded us perfectly and just showed the power that uh, prayer and God has in America that if the average Joe stands up, it's amazing what people can do. What do you want people's takeaway from this very public fight to be? Well, number one, that they can't kick God out of the public square and everybody's rights are equal. We talk so much about diversity, equity and inclusion, but we forget about everybody else. Nobody's really that special. Everybody has the same right as an American. So this just proves that all rights are protected. Doesn't matter what your religion, what your faith is. You have the freedom of speech and you have the freedom of religion. It's live and well, and you need to exercise those rights. Tell me what you expect, you know, because people, what, what do you expect tonight when 
you who became this national symbol out of um, out of this situation. What do you expect after the game? You think a lot of people are going to join you? Is it, is there any plans? I haven't made any plans. I've heard uh, the numbers are going to vary from a thousand to ten thousand people going to show up for a football game here in Bremerton, which is quite a huge number. I've never seen numbers like that. So I, I don't know what the plan is. I don't know if the kids are going to join me. I don't know if the coaches, the referees. Um, I, I, I'm assuming that people are going to be in the stands and hopefully taking a knee. And I've asked everybody across the nation, take a knee on this Friday night to kick into the football season and exercise their rights and be thankful for something here in America. Yeah, you make a good point about how America is is different in that from the beginning, we said our rights come from God, not from not from man, not from a king, um, but from from a higher a higher power. Uh, I think about the Supreme Court ruling. U.S. Court uh, voted six three. Uh, your right to pray on the field was protected by the First Amendment. Majority of Americans um, approve of that. You know, there's a difference between uh, establishing a religion and allowing someone the free practice thereof, which is what you were you were said to do. Um, it's certainly not more important than this case, but how's the team looking for uh, for this year? You know, like I said earlier, they, I swear they get younger every single year. They <laughs> started a new defense and a new offense right after I was suspended from coaching. So I feel like an incoming freshman and not knowing any of the plays, it's been a crash course. But I tell you, we have some players on our team. It's it's good to see that these kids, there are kids that are out there working out and that have a desire to compete. Got it. Well, Coach, we followed we followed you for a long time. Uh, we're going to get some video uh, from Friday night. You make such a great point uh, about Friday night football, football Fridays in the fall in America. It's it's special. It really is. And um and your fight for what you think has been important has been um, instructive. Whether people agree with you or not, you got to admire um, your courage through all this. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you. I really appreciate it and appreciate the support of all Americans. It's awesome. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you, Leland. As promised, we will follow Coach Kennedy. His, his team will take the field tonight at 6.30 Pacific time. Coming up next summer might, well, summer might be wrapping up. It's, it's hard to admit that, right? But maybe we're excited about fall. A couple unsuspecting breakout stars are just getting started as they become household names. We're going to talk about them coming up. So no one wants to hear it, or maybe you do, if you're someone who likes fall. But summer is winding down, and since it's the Friday of Labor Day, we wanted to do a special edition of our favorite end-of-week segment, Good Week, Bad Week. So it's now Good Summer, Bad Summer. And from our partners at The Hill, White House columnist Niall Stanich, and In the Know columnist Judy Kurtz joins me now. So here's the deal for both of you and for our viewers. We have three of the biggest topics from the summer, and the two of you are left to think of whether or not it was a good summer or a bad summer for either of those two topics. So the first one, 
Mm, we'll see how you do. Uh, the GOP voters. So we're going to look at the state of the party right now. Donald Trump, the man who is obviously the front runner and only getting stronger in the polls, was just arrested. Don't have to tell any of you this on his fourth indictment. Ron DeSantis hasn't caught on uh, really the way many of us has hoped. And then Vivek Ramaswamy is obviously, especially this week, just getting hammered in the press. So the field hasn't necessarily totally changed. But then we look at the other side and we have Joe Biden, who is facing a number of criticisms himself from his age to his son's legal issues. And of course, his single sinking approval rating. So good or bad summer for Republican voters, because you can talk about the Republicans when you look at the Dems. So, Niall, I'm going to start with you. Good summer for Republican voters, in my opinion, because in the primary, they have a full menu of options to choose from. They have Trump or they have 57 varieties of not Trump. (laughs) And it ranges from people who are very aggressively anti-Trump, like Chris Christie, through the kind of lukewarm anti-Trump people like Nikki Haley, around to the weirdly pro-Trump Vivek Ramaswamy, who appears to be running for the nomination against a man who considers the greatest president of all times. Exactly. Depending on when you ask him. Exactly. Okay, but Judy, uh, you know, I did watch the debate with some people who are not as politically savvy, and they would say, who, who is, wait, who is, who is that? Absolutely. I have to disagree with my wonderful colleague here, Niall. <laughs> Republican uh, voters are having a bad summer because, you know... Former President Trump is having a hot indictment summer, which is not the kind of summer you want to have. Uh, despite that, he's still the front runner. And the media seems to be having summer flings with Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, dead on arrival campaign, it appears. Um, but voters can't seem to get on board with any of the Trump alternatives. Uh, that being said, I, I do think we should mention that the Democrats haven't exactly had the best summer either. It hasn't been a day at the beach for Democrats either. Unless- Unless you're on vacation and you're, and you're Mr. Joe Biden. Unless you're on vacation like <laughs> President Biden in, in Rehoboth Beach, where he often uh, vacations. But despite um, some political wins, legislative wins for Biden, he still has these uh, flagging poll numbers. Can't seem to get him up and questions about whether he's fit for office. So it hasn't been, uh, you know, all good news for Democrats. This I don't know who the winner is, because if you think about it, you're right about about President, former President Donald Trump. But then you look at his fundraising, it goes up with every indictment. So you're thinking to yourself, okay. Maybe we'll just call it a draw. How's that? I think Republicans are ready for sweater weather at this point. (laughs) Oh, I like that one. Were you planning on that one? Good. Okay, so next up, the entertainment industry. This is a fun one. Uh, Movies came back in a huge way. I I was a little bit surprised like that. We had cultural themes with everything from Barbie to Sound of Freedom, Oppenheimer hitting the box office in a big way. And then country music is experiencing really a boom as artists are taking on some of these really hot-button issues. Of course, on the flip side, Um, These are folks who are engaging in social issues. So, Judy, I want to start with you because we go to these things, but then we criticize, let's say, Bud Light. You know, we we, can we have it both ways? Can we have them engage in social issues and go to their movies and love their topics and love their songs and then not like other ones? Yeah, I think we've seen a little bit of both of those things. And I think the entertainment industry as a whole has had a great summer. They've had a fantastic summer. We've we're talking about movies more than we ever have, I think, in the in recent years, Barbie Heimer. And then just uh, yesterday, Taylor Swift's Eras concert tour film is breaking ticket sales records for uh, AMC theaters. Uh, but I think there is a blockbuster-sized elephant in the room here, which is the Hollywood writer's strikes. And that is putting a damper on an otherwise really good summer for the entertainment industry. What do you think, Niall? 
I think bad summer for the entertainment industry. Myself and Judy are having civil disagreements here. And I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you why. Because the, the music element of it, these country music songs, the Jason Aldean song, and then, of course, Richmond, North of Richmond, they aren't big songs. Like, if you look at the history of music, you think of people like Bob Dylan or Aretha Franklin or Sam Cooke with these songs that expanded the world. And now we have this guy in the woods singing about why fat people shouldn't get welfare. Like, does that actually expand anything? Does that make the world a bigger place? I think that makes the world a smaller place. So I, I like it. I like, okay, um, I won't call it a draw. I'm not going to tell you what I think, but I like both of your answers. Um, this is probably my favorite only because I love animals, and I feel like if you make a dog angry and he bites you, it's probably your fault, but that's just my opinion. I'm just going to throw it out there. We want to wrap it up here with might be like a good summer or a bad summer for the Secret Service, so we're broadening it to just Commander. So we take a look at some of the headlines that plague the Secret service this summer. Well, obviously, they did find cocaine at the White House. Minor mishap. AP sources say Secret Service closes with the White House cocaine case without any suspect intruder. And this is another one at the home of Biden advisor Jake Sullivan. So he bypassed Secret Service and got inside of the home. And then another issue the Secret Service was Biden's dog commander has been biting Secret Service agents. And it's not just a, a one-time thing, right? I mean, this is something that we've been talking about. And if I'm not mistaken, Commander came as a puppy. Is that right? Did you guys have... Think so. I get confused between the various dogs. I, I'm yes. on dog duty. You're okay. on dog duty? Yes. Okay. So what team are you on? I'll start with you, Niall. Are you dog cocaine? On am, which... I, am I dog cocaine? I was a descriptor <laughs> that has never been used about me before, but this is the first time for everything. Uh, bad summer for the Secret Service, uh, not only because of the cocaine, the dog bites, the fact that there was a toddler that eluded them at the White House, and there was an apparently drunk guy who got past them at the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan's house. So if you have a triple threat of a toddler, a drunk guy, and whatever the third one was, oh, a dog, yeah, and you lose to all three arms of the triple threat, that's not a good summer. All for right, Judy, service. what do you think? Man's best friend is bringing us together on this one. Definitely a bad summer. The dog days of summer have proven very bad for the Secret <laughs> Service as well, um, especially with the commander uh, biting incidents coming out through a Freedom of Information Act request. N- not good, not good. I think that, you know, maybe they need to lather on some more sunscreen over the Secret Service. You it know got what? burned. I hear Secret Service agents love a good pumpkin spice latte, and so it is their time to shine now that fall is here. We'll leave it at that. How does that sound? Absolutely. Bundle up for the winter. (laughs) Thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, when we come up next, the Gold Star wife who kept a promise to her late husband, why she is now sharing that promise with her adult children. Twenty years ago, Gold Star wife Tiffany Eckert spoke to her husband Andy for the very last time. He was serving in Iraq just before Mother's Day. He made a pact with her at that time that no matter what, she would get an education. Of course, neither of them could even fathom that that would be their last phone call. At 24 years old, Andy was killed the next day by a roadside bomb. At 23, Tiffany found herself alone with two little babies, one brand new, a lifetime ahead of her, and one unfulfilled promise. Fast forward to today, it's actually a happy ending. Not only has she kept that promise, she's exceeded it with all expectations. With undergrad under her belt, she's now back at Bowling Green University for her MBA, and this time 
We told you about those babies. Well, they're not babies anymore. And in fact, all three of them are in college together. And Tiffany joins me now. Tiffany, I, I cannot express my gratitude for y- you being here today. And 20 years ago, I'm sure the loss still feels like it happened yesterday. So I am so sorry for your loss. But, you know, I, I do want to focus on the positive. Tell me about tell me about school. School's great. You know, it's something I never thought I would do. And I was just telling someone earlier today that I'm just going to keep going. For me personally, I didn't think that I was ever going to get a college degree. And my husband truly believed that I was the smartest person he ever knew. And in our last conversation, he told me, you need to get an education. So I waited all these years and I went back to school and I did it and I did it exceptionally well. And now I'm in grad school for my master's in public administration. I plan to go all the way and get my doctorate degree. And now the the most incredible thing is that I'm in school with both of our children. Miles is a freshman in the fashion program at Bowling Green. And my daughter Marley is a sophomore and she's taking human development and science classes. And she's also starting beauty school in a couple of weeks. So she's doing both very driven. I'd like to think that that comes from me, but it's, it's the neatest experience. You know, I dropped my son off to college a couple weeks ago and I didn't cry when I left him, but the next day I was on campus and I was walking through the the quad with a colleague and I looked over and Miles was walking across the quad with his orientation group and I stopped and it was just this moment where kind of like in a movie, just things stopped and I was just laser focused looking at, you know, my son who is now this young man walking across campus and I said, hey Miles, and that's when I cried. The tears just came, uh, it's like full circle. You know, when I lost Andy, I was so young and I have always had hope because that's what's carried me through that and my love for him as well as our children. But, um, so how did you do that, Tiffany? I mean, grief, grief is paralyzing and it's also paralyzing to be a new mother. I mean, it's hard. And you're sitting here with your, your only line of defense, your partner, and he's gone. My answer to that is hope and love. Andy loved me in a way that people don't often experience. And that love for me, I focused on our children, my love for Marley and Miles, my love for life, my love for Andy. And now, all these years later, the love that I've learned to have for myself is what has carried me through. And not to say that there haven't been dark times, because it has been a road. But there's always, always something to look you know, forward to. Tiffany, when Andy said to you, go get your education, and it was the last time that you spoke, was, was that his way of saying that, that you need to love yourself? You know, uh, that's a good question. I, I would say, yeah. I didn't think, looking back now, older, wiser Tiffany, young Tiffany didn't love herself. And it wasn't even until a couple years ago when I went through school and I got my undergrad under I started my undergraduate degree. I learned to love myself and a lot of that has to do with the program that I was in focused on human development and family science. I learned a lot about myself and just human development in general and I healed parts of me that I didn't know need to be healed. And and across that path I came to find a love for me and now I understand why Andy loved me so much. You know, Tiffany, we, we did a segment earlier in the show about people acting out of control. I think one of the biggest accomplishments nowadays is loving yourself and loving other people. 
Um, you know, if you could have a conversation with Andy, what would you tell him right now? And what do you probably tell him every day? If I could have a conversation with Andy, if that were actually possible, I would literally just tell him, I love you and thank you for loving me. And probably I would just look at him and hope that our kids were there and we were all together. People do not realize when you have the opportunity and you have the moments where you can tell people what you feel, they don't do it. So if I had the opportunity, all I would really have to say is I love you. And of course, I missed you. Tiffany, we're so grateful for your time. Um, I wish that we could talk to you for the whole hour because you're such an inspiration. Like I said, we're just trying to get people to be decent. And you're decent and you're raising decent humans. And Andy is so proud. And we're proud of you, too. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. We probably don't have to tell you full slate of college football this Labor Day weekend. And one thing you can expect to see a whole lot more of this season is beer and liquor sales. This year, Michigan State University and the University of Kentucky are two schools that, for the first time, are allowing alcohol to be sold at college football games. They're hoping to repeat the success seen by other schools, such as University of Tennessee. Last year alone, the University of Tennessee, or Old Rocky Top, sold more than 278 thousand beers at home football games so that equates to a whopping 3.3 million dollars their most profitable game by the way brought in seven hundred thousand dollars in alcohol sales alone that's a lot of money and a lot of booze we have scott hamilton here who is an expert of all things beer football you name it scott thank you so much for joining us so okay here's my thing the kids are drinking all right they're drinking they're already drinking they're just gonna be drinking more well, I mean, that's one way to look at it. But, you know, it's kind of funny. You would think by making something like this, is legal, I guess, the right word, uh, available. We'll say available. You would think by making something like this available that you would have more incidents. But what's been proven across the board, fewer alcohol-related arrests in the stadium. Now, there's a couple of different theories for that. And, and Elizabeth, you remember your college days. I remember my college days. The rush before kickoff, people feel like they have to get more, 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 then go in the stadium. And by the time they get in the stadium, it's hitting them and they're a little more out of control. Well, now that it's available to them, they're not being quite as irresponsible. Again, a gentle Ooh. word when they go into Yeah, You like that before they go in the stadium because they can get it. And, and Elizabeth, you know how these things are. If, if it's forbidden, you're going to, it, it makes it more lucrative, more tempting. And, you know, but if you can get it, oh, it's not quite that big of a deal. So uh, well, it's actually been, Scott, my mother's watching. I still am not 21, and I haven't had any alcohol in my entire life, so I don't know what you're talking about. But I do want to do a macro view, <laughs> macro view here because are we just making college sports like going to a major league? I mean, it's, a, it's becoming professional, is it not? Well, this has been going on anyhow. I mean, you look at the seismic shifts – in college athletics over the last couple of years. Right. And it's it's creeping more and more towards the professional model. Name, image, and likeness. Look at the biggest news today. The biggest news in college athletics today, the Atlantic Coast Conference, the ACC, signing off on bringing in three new members. Where are those three new members? Nowhere near the Atlantic, nowhere near the Atlantic Ocean. It's Cal, it's Stanford, it's SMU. Why are they doing that? 
because they have to have members to keep getting in the money, to keep up with the likes of a Big Ten, to keep up with the likes of the SEC and their massive TV deals. It's all about the dollars in college athletics. And when you're selling alcohol, when you're selling alcohol, it's another revenue stream to keep up for the arms race of facilities. Okay, well, we only have, I have less than a minute left. But, you know, does that take away what we experienced in college? There was something so romantic about college sports. Is it gone now? I I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we're still going to watch. It's what we do. That's true. But, but to your point, we're losing the regional rivalries. We're losing just the old, get the old family together and root on state you kind of feel to it. It's going to the professional model, but it's changed. And change is inevitable for everything. We just got to accept it. Okay, so we can agree that um, I have still never drank beer, and now we're getting arrested less, and um, now maybe perhaps college sports are turning professional, and we'll leave it at that. Scott Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. We're so grateful for your time. That's all for us tonight. Uh, We have Chris Cromo coming up after the break. Thank you for joining us on Balance on this Friday night. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo, and welcome to a News Nation Town Hall. 